Hello, welcome to Hospitality News and Views. I'm Raj Randhawa. I'm Richard Majewski. How's it going, Richard? How have things been? It's been a long time since you've spoken. Yeah, it has been a very long time. Yeah, not bad, thanks. Not bad. We've got the builders in, in domestically, as you might be able to hear in the background. So apologies for that if it, if it disturbs recording. And yeah, but no, I'm good, thanks. Yeah. That's great. I mean, obviously, the last um, three, four weeks have been actually quite remarkable, if you think about it. Obviously, we're opening up now. Pandemic is now not necessarily past us, but we're opening up and we're seeing quite a lot of activity around that. Local community wise, I mean, Brentford got off to a great start in the Premiership, as did all, all the football's been brilliant, to be honest. It was absolutely fantastic. Champions League was fantastic. And then Emma Raducanu blew everybody away at the US Open. Not too sure if it's in the tennis, but I thought it was amazing. And the Olympics, which I thought were going to be really boring turned out not to be so, but not necessarily for the reasons that I thought. I actually missed all the people being in the stadiums. I thought the stadiums were so quiet, it was a bit strange. But um, there were some remarkable, remarkable achievements, actually. The par- in the Paralympics, yeah. In the Paralympics, especially in the Paralympics. I thought the Paralympics were amazing. The normal Olympics were good. I mean, they're fantastic. I mean, there were some great, great achievements, no doubt about that. But Paralympics, I thought, were just incredible. Honestly, uh, I, I started watching it. I think it was a Sunday morning and it was wheelchair rugby yeah, and yeah. um I, it was the final uh, uh, britain against the united states and it, i was just riveted um you know it was yeah i i don't think it's it's appropriate for me to even kind of like mention the, the, the context of all of that it's simply sports people doing sport and it was an entertaining and competitive and all the rest of it and it, I just enjoyed it a lot and we won we won gold as well yeah yeah we did we did and I thought it was fantastic it's a pity that there weren't large crowds there because I think that oh, that's a great pity and I didn't really think that there was enough coverage in the UK to be honest for the Paralympics but I'm really hoping that as we sort of get back to normality people will reflect on this stuff they won't let it be forgotten and if, if we're allowed to reflect on this you suddenly realize now oh, the teams and the competitors just amazing really amazing i don't know who i don't know who should be congratulated out there because uh, i have to um, hold my hands up and say i don't pay sufficient attention to these things um I wish that this was on the video because we'd probably see a builder come through the wall behind me in a minute. Um, it's so loud here. Um, but I don't know. I think it's the lottery, isn't it, which has invested heavily yeah, in, yeah. in athletics. And look what's happened now. Britain, where, where were we? Were we second in the Olympics? I mean, it's been an amazing journey when you think about it because it all started just before 2012, isn't it? So right. if you actually look at it, it's been phenomenal. And I think the fact that so many young competitors have got through, it's not just that they're getting through, but it's actually quite young competitors are getting through. And that means they're going to have, they're going to be there for two, three, four Olympics, hopefully. Exactly. And you, you mentioned tennis. You mentioned yeah. tennis earlier as well with the US Open and Women's yeah. Open. What an achievement. I mean, it was absolutely, honestly, the sport has been fantastic. Like, you know, I'm not going to go back to what happened with England, but <laughs> football, but even that was yeah. great. And the reality is we all enjoyed the moment. No, good, bad or indifferent. And I think that bringing people together, we are, it's quite strange. I think we've come out of lockdown at just the right time. Yeah. If you actually think about the um, what was being talked about with the lockdown and even after it was delayed coming out, 
there were still so many people saying, oh, you mustn't come out, mustn't come out, mustn't come out. The fact that we've come out, I think, has really shown that it was the right thing to do. I was talking to some of our colleagues in um, Australia, where obviously there's been lockdowns and it's really tough. Uh, the lockdowns there have been very, very tough. They are now saying that even the government there and the local people there are now saying, look, we've got to learn to live with this. We can't be in a situation where we don't learn how to live with this. And I think that sort of approach is going to end up becoming the mandated approach right across the globe, actually. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when you were talking there, and I, th- I thought it was coming through my, going through my mind, and my family always have a, have a go at me for um, creating metaphors out of everything. But it's a tiny bit like getting into the shower and adjusting the the, the heat of the shower. And I don't know if it's if the water's too hot, I, I still don't want to get in there. Um, mm. And that's how I feel with with COVID. But it is such a personal personal kind yeah. of thing, isn't it? Um, you know how how I feel and how I act will be different to how the next person feels and acts. And the massive important thing is that we all respect each other as long as the other person's choices do not have an impact on on other people. You know, me staying at home doesn't impact anyone particularly. I'm sure that most people are happy that I'm out of the way. But, you know, there are other... I I won't go into it because it's all too divisive, but, um, you know, there are other kind of choices which do threaten me and my health. Yeah, but it has to be very careful. And and different countries, obviously, are taking a very different approach. I mean, the UK government has decided not to use vaccine, but over the English government has decided not to use uh, vaccine passports. And I think that will have a consequence throughout the rest of the UK, and they'll agree not to do that. Something personally, I agree with. However, I can understand what's happening in places like Italy, where the government has been very strict and is now saying that all workers, all health workers must have a vaccine passport and they're trying to push that onto the whole workforce which is similar sort of thing going on in France as well isn't it so these different sort of approaches everybody's there's always going to be one group against one group for isn't there it's always going to be like that but we'll sort of see over the coming months how it's impacted the economy I think that some of this stuff is being driven by how it's going to impact the economy and one of the things that I was thinking about just as you were talking about you know staying at home and and I'm working from home as well still there was a survey done a few days ago, which was published on the BBC, and it, it was quite a big survey, over a 1,000 respondents, and 70% plus of people said they don't expect to go back to work full-time, in terms of five days a week. And also, in the business community, there's a very high proportion of people who are saying, we're not going to expect people to go back into the offices five days a week. Which is, yeah, I mean, so, so come back to that one, with the, with the vaccination passports, you know, we're not used to paperwork, papers in this country, are we? IDs yeah. and the like. But I remember a network, online networking event we, we, we were, I think we were both on not long ago. And a, a, a German attendees there were saying about what they call an Impfbuch in Germany. You know, it's standard. They've got all their, their, their vaccinations in that book. I suppose the point is whether we're expected to carry it around with us to prove mm-hmm. that we've been, what vaccinations we've had. Yeah, it's a difficult one. Really, and it's going to it would hammer the nighttime economy, of course, uh, very badly because yeah. a lot of young people haven't been vaccinated, I guess, and they wouldn't be getting into the clubs and the pubs. But then again, you know, I'll be honest with you, and uh, I wouldn't want to go into the pubs and the well, they don't let me in the clubs anymore, but into the pubs that where they are. So, uh, you know, I'll be, I'll be in the beer garden anyway. Yeah, I, so, I, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. I mean, the 
I, I do have a problem with people who don't take the vaccine. I, I generally have a big problem, obviously, the fact that you know, there are members of the family who are in the medical profession. You know, it's just it's just crazy, really. I, I just don't get it. But yeah. the the issue of the um, passports and the issue around that, one, you can't go to your doctor and get a list of all the vaccinations you've got because sometimes when you go to certain countries, you've got to have that list. Yeah, you've got to go with and you've got to show you've been vaccinated. So it's not that we don't have that, but it's just carrying it around. The NHS app, the whole thing is so cumbersome. And if you lose it, it's a pain. It's like we don't even carry driving licenses with us. I mean, I carry a driving license because I'm afraid of losing it, <laughs> not because I need to carry it. <laughs> it's just one of those strange things, isn't it? So it just doesn't kind of, maybe we're not comfortable with it at the moment. Who knows? Yeah. Maybe when we see it working elsewhere and as we start opening up, and as I mean, one of the things that was announced today was that um, they're going to start now changing the rules regarding travel. In fact, uh, one of the things that I've just noted now, actually, the amber list looks like it's going to be removed. So it's going to, they're going to be encouraging people to go you know, use the airlines to get to holidays, et cetera, et cetera. Maybe when you go there and you suddenly find everyone's carrying a vaccine passport, because they're going to say, look, I've got one. Why haven't you got one? Yeah. And you see it used. Maybe the reticence around it will diminish, or they might turn around and say, "Got it, it's a nightmare. The queues to get in anywhere are a nightmare." So you end up not attending. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be honest uh, with, with this one, and I, I think you'll agree because you're you're, you're in, in in if I can kind of generalize and say in the software business, uh, in a lot of a lot of aspects of that. And you, when you do something, you future proof what you're doing. Yeah, you do. Why? on earth don't these people sit down and future-proof a plan beyond the next month so that we don't have to keep changing the the the, the traffic lights and things yeah. it annoys me because they should have thought through what will be at the next stage rather than ditch that one and that you know it is me still thinking that there's a traffic light system uh you know oh we've got two traffic lights now and we've got no, yeah please. yeah i think i think the problem is that internationally, there doesn't seem to be any real agreement. I think if it was just about your own country and you and you do your own stuff, yes, exactly, you're right. And stuff has not been future-proofed in the way that maybe it should have been. I mean, but that's why, that's the benefit of, it's the benefit of us being in the EU, isn't it, though, Raj? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So anyway, so yeah, so, so it, there's no... So there's no international coordination and collaboration. I don't think there is. I don't. I don't think. I think it's very difficult because everybody's thinking of themselves, and that's where the problem is. You know, the reality is, if you're thinking of yourselves, and everybody is thinking of themselves, you know, different people, different countries are at different stages. We in the UK are far further ahead than some of the other countries. You know, so it makes for a very different view of where you are in the world, doesn't it? So to me, the if you actually look at just taking on board what you just said. When the, when the pandemic started, the government said, right, we're going to put QR codes on all the establishments so we know where people are. So that, And that was part of the tracing system. And then they've abandoned it now. I think they should have kept it going. What, what's to stop them? If somebody wants to put, use it, let them use it. If they don't use it, fair enough. But don't say it's not needed anymore. Mm. Yeah, Just make it a, 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 the request that we would prefer you to use it. Don't force it. So you're right. And I think that that lack of thinking sometimes does create a problem when you need to do something because it, it sounds like you're you know back to square one again i mean you could, people are then and for me speaking personally and I'm, I'm thinking it's probably common with everyone 
you, you're confused and you lose respect for the people who are making those decisions and trying to, and, and who have been elected to, to make our lives, to give some structure to our lives, um, you know. Um, no, so, that's yeah, right. It's... That's right. And, you know, the, some of the arguments going around the world are really weird. It's like there's a big argument, you know, mandating wearing of masks. I can understand the mandating of wearing masks where not where very few people have actually been vaccinated or where there's such a significant resistance to the vaccination process. I can understand it there. And I don't get how, you know, if somebody said to you, right, you don't have to take the vaccine, but you've got to wear a mask. Where's the problem with that? I don't quite understand that. There's got to be some kind of compromise. And I think we see, we're seeing less compromise. Uh, I mean, I carry a mask when I go out. doesn't mean it's say I always wear it. But if I feel like wearing it, I will wear it, you know, if I feel... And I think it's about awareness, isn't it? I mean, I hate wearing a mask, to be honest. I really hate it. But... Yeah, you know, I, I think that it's also about respecting how you feel that the other per, that the other people with, with, with yeah. whom you're interacting, uh, how, how they are. And, you know, we talk about, like, at, at conferences to have these traffic light things as well with the red, green, amber. I still don't know what amber is, you know. But do you choose, you, you choose the people that you hug? at yes. the conference but um it's you know one's no one's yes and one's not sure don't i don't get it but yeah a cut traffic light system where you know i'd wear red which means don't come anywhere near me i'm gonna carry um, a 10 foot pole stay outside this circle yeah 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 you know if, if i can yeah um so so there's that uh, I, I just you know it's kind of gauging isn't it how, how people are and and if, if you're talking to if you meet them in the street you're talking to them they've got red then you don't kind of like yeah, you know yeah. but i think it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next few months High Street is now trying to, they're trying to revive the high streets. They're trying to revive travel. They're trying to get people out of their homes. A lot, I think, will depend on confidence, you know, more so than anything else, confidence. And the, the there were some interesting stats that came out today. I don't know if you saw it today. They were saying that you know, the issues of long COVID, which were almost just a few weeks ago, it was almost as though it's being reported as, if you're young and you get COVID, you've got, you know, you've got a 10% chance of really being badly hit by it. Right. Now they're looking at the numbers and they're saying it's one in 40. Worst case scenario. One in 40, four zero. Yeah, one in 40. Out of, whereas before, it's one in 10. One in 10. Yeah. Right. So it's, you know, I think that sometimes there are too many people. It's, you know, it's always somebody who can say, yeah, but. Yeah. You know, there's always somebody, yeah, but. But no one actually puts any figures around that yeah but and as a result they're given the same level of um appreciation they put at the same level as everybody else who's got numbers and can prove what they're saying and that yeah but seems to be the thing that is almost driving some of the conversations um and yeah so people will be frightened you know of going out yeah um but no there's there's yeah, there, I mean, there is certainly an awful lot of activity out there. Um, now, I um, did go to Manchester not long ago, well, last weekend, I think it was. Um, I, I, but, you know, it, I w wouldn't have gone to a, a, a bigger gathering. It was just as I could, walking down the street, I can control to some extent. And that's about as far as I've got, is going down the, the street and staying in a, in a hotel. Um, did yeah. you drive? Uh, drove and yeah, drove, drove uh, and stayed overnight. Uh, I've, in recent uh, over over COVID, we've been doing round trips. 
Um, that was the first time we did three round trips um, to Manchester, which, uh, and, uh, you know, and, but this time we stayed overnight, the uh, Whitworth lot. Excellent. Uh, Eden. Yeah, which, which, which was really nice. And and it was all, it was good, good experience. Enjoyed it. You're walking around the street and you're thinking, okay, no one's got masks on. So uh, we're in the clear, are we? But that's these people out for a beer. And um, and and do I take their their their, their point of yeah. view? But and then you know people in the family going to Park Life, a big big festival up there, and they're just having an absolute party. No no distancing, no masks, no nothing. So yeah, but the the nighttime economy seemed alive and kicking in Manchester. That's for sure. Yeah, and it's needed. It's needed. I mean, it's been closed for such a long time. When I was looking at some of the stats, I mean, that survey about you know, 70% of people are not going to go back, uh, are not expected to go back to five days in the office. I mean, it's a huge number, 70%. And that has a huge impact on hospitality generally, because that means there's going to be fewer people going into the cities or going into the areas that are, you know, you've got all the little calves and so on. So they're going to be impacted. But one of the strange things is, I don't know if you saw this thing um, a few weeks ago, the UK actually broke a record, and the record was it had more vacancies than ever recorded before. That ties in, Raj, with what was going through my mind just now, and it only just flashed through my mind. But it reminds me of in the old, old days, I don't know if it was the 70s or when it was, <clears throat> the three-day week. And I'm thinking, if people are going into the office three days a week, but there's loads of vacant, there's loads of, um, there's, there are a lot of people... No, hang on. No, a lot of jobs. Vacancy, yeah, it's the other way around. So, yeah. so there was a million vacancies recorded. One million vacancies not being, I mean, that's a huge number. Okay. And the reason it caught, uh, caught my eye was that we've been talking a lot about in hospitality how we're struggling to find people. There are a lot of vacancies. And also, not only struggling to find people, but also people are leaving. Could I ask? Yeah. Sorry to interrupt, Raj, but unemployment is it like you know a million vacancies but there's three million unemployed kind of thing or what unemployment's gone down unemployment's gone down yeah it has gone down i think it's about 4.5 percent now or 4.4 it did go down and the other thing that was really good was that the furlough scheme which is unwinding okay it's actually there's still people on furlough but it's now really ramping down. You can see that those people are going back into work, but not suddenly finding themselves out of work. So, so that's a good thing. But, but, was, but the figures that were produced were for from March to June this year. Okay, so you had a million vacancies, which is a huge number. We have been kind of worrying about the fact that people have been leaving the hospitality industry. And, it ha- and a lot of people have left the hospitality industry to go to other industries because you know, some of the reasons we've, we've discussed in the past are things like lack of security, the fact that you know, the lockdowns coming in and out, hospitality seemed to be the one that was being aimed at more than any other industry. Yeah. So there are all those kind of things. But in that same period that there were a hundred a million vacancies, hospitality actually took on 122,000 new people. There were new jobs created. When you're saying hospitality. I'm hospitality, this is hotels, restaurants, you know, the whole, whole gamut. And this is before we've opened up. Yeah. I mean, I know in a recent conversation, you you, you, you kind of showed a, um, a, a, your understanding of a, a definition within that term hospitality so do you 
within accommodation. It's not split. Those figures aren't split. No, they're not split. No, they're not split. But the strange thing is, this is before we opened up. We opened up in July, and the figures are from 2000, no, March to June. So in that period, as preparation for opening up, they created 122,000 jobs were created and filled at the same time that there were a million vacancies. It's one of those things, isn't it, with stats that you can, you what, what is it? But, you know, certainly you can fudge them. I mean, it could be just a massive churn, couldn't it? You know, there might be vacancies, but they might be filled the next day with all the other people coming around. I think, just- yeah, it could be. But I think a lot of it's to do with coming out of the pandemic. Obviously, Britain was even hit hard. All countries have been hit hard. Many would argue that Britain was hit harder than most. But we're coming out of it with a lot of speed. And I think that at speed is what's actually giving a lot of confidence into the UK economy. And I think we're going to find that with the uh, the budget when it comes up in the, in the next uh, month or so, for the, the autumn budget, when that's announced. I think we're going to suddenly see a lot of things being talked about of not just maintaining the speed, but giving it a further boost. Because a lot of stuff has been happening that in, in terms of the economy in a positive way. But the big question now, I think, is a million vacancies. That's a hell of a lot. How do you fill them? How do you fill a million vacancies? You know, that's a, that is a huge number. And it's going to be interesting to see just what the impact of that is over the coming months. Because I don't see a million jobs suddenly, a million people suddenly becoming employed overnight. You'll be pleased to know, Raj, that I do have the answer, but but you and the listeners will have to tune into the next podcast <laughs> to hear it. <laughs> Stay tuned. Yeah, but it is, I thought it was just very interesting. And part of that started making me look at what's going on. Obviously, the economy is something we're all focused on, now, not just in the UK, but other countries. And one of the things I've noticed is, I think it's expected when you have these type of downturns of the economy of a new start and upturn, is consolidation happening within industries. If I give a couple of examples, Hyatt acquired Apple Leisure Group. Apple Ledger Group are really big in resort management, travel and hospitality. The Cubic Hotel in London was sold to Great Port in the States. Again, part of a, 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 no, a, a consolidation there. Handpicked Hotels bought three hotels in Channel Islands recently. And you know they didn't have any presence there, but it's all consolidating. It's almost like they're seeing some of these distressed properties and they're consolidating them and some of the groups there. And then obviously the big one was um, the collective who recently went into administration. And co-living was actually a really big thing being talked about as being the thing to get out of the pandemic and going forward. And it's just strange. It's just strange that you know, on the one hand, we're getting consolidation. On the other hand, you've got things like the collective gone into administration. They couldn't find a buyer. So is the perception of the industry changing in terms of the so-called new normal, perceptions of how hotels are going to operate, service department operators are going to operate? And is the consolidation happening in other areas as well? It's very interesting. And I, I was quite surprised, it, it, indeed shocked, when, when you mentioned the, the, the collective. Um, earlier on the the co-living model was was doing just fine it seemed to hit the rails at co but but, sorry i mean that positive in a positive way so that's not a negative um, description so it seemed to to just hit hit the ground running um at at the beginning of covid and i I was skeptical as to whether the model and and sharing of um, social spaces was one that would work but it did work and i've got Massive respect for all the um, co-living operators out there who who <clears throat> have who, who have together who have worked together um, really really hard with conferences online and, and everything to to form brands and and collaborate 
and a sector has really emerged and, and, and a strong sector, which once upon a time was seen as perhaps akin to HMOs or to service departments, de depending upon, obviously, the issue is, um, uh, the difference is, co-living has organised events and, and, and what have you, rather than HMOs are, are a lot smaller. That's my understanding, at least, but I'm not, yeah. not in that sector. But yeah, shocking. Um, and I'm really sorry for everybody involved with, with the collective and because yeah. it looked so good. Exactly. And because we know people who were there, obviously we feel for them. And hopefully they'll, going into administration won't result in them... Um, collapsing completely hopefully hopefully they'll find a buyer and find an operator that will actually bring, uh, take them on but one of the things that's quite strange is that is the co-living model okay during the pandemic it was quite strange during the pandemic there was a boom in accommodation which was completely self-contained i mean you know it's really hard to find a really good house if you had, if a house had a swimming pool that guy was renting that property at a huge rate every week the, the rates were phenomenal. Uh, served apartments came into their own because they're self-contained. Hotels were struggling because the restaurants were all communal style living and therefore people weren't willing to go there. So the restaurants had to start introducing, uh, hotels had to start introducing breakfast packages that could be delivered to the rooms, et cetera, et cetera. And co-living was a bit of a strange one. On the one hand, it had all the good things about a self-contained space, you know, you've got your own room, own bathroom, et cetera, et cetera. And yet it also the communal element of it in which many people said would be a problem, i.e. communal kitchens, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the spaces, they were seen as the as a good thing because of the issues of loneliness and mental health. And because you know, and the, the places didn't become deserted. So you felt you were around people around you. Whereas in the other sectors, the seclusion became an issue. Yeah. Yeah, so, so, you, so, so you would think that having come out of the pandemic, that inclusion element would be a bigger strength. Yeah. And, so, and yet that doesn't seem to have happened. So co-living as a business model, if the collective have gone into it, and they're big, they're not, we're not talking about a small operator, has that business model now found a hurdle that is struggling with in the new normal? My, my, my view on, on that one, and I, and I hope it's correct, if, if it is alas rather basic in terms of economics but I, I i really hope that it's a case that the smaller operators can be agile enough now to to change with the times whereas perhaps the collective was so big that the the drain on resources over that time was so bad that they um at the time when they uh, you know are coming up for air again they're, they're just about ready to start swimming They'd lost all the air in their lungs kind of thing. There's another metaphor. I'm really sorry about that. <laughs> um, but, yeah. No, but it's, it's, uh, I think it's the, the models of what is considered a viable model now has to reflect the fact that for the next couple of years, things are, I don't think things are going to change dramatically, but they would be changing. So the business models have got to reflect these changes. 100%. Yeah, the clients, yeah, you know. Are they are they getting on planes? Is it staycations with leisure, you know, contractors? And uh, will teams be smaller, but they will stay longer? I don't know. Uh, corporates, you know, will it be business travel as we once knew it, or uh, will they be relocating people ar around the world? Yeah, there are, like you say, and of course it's the supply and demand thing. It's not just 
you know, Mr. Mr. Hotelier or Mr. Service Department person deciding on it, is it? It's, supply, it's supplying that what's required in the marketplace. And we're and it's changing so fast out there that it's just agility is still one of those words that came along at the beginning of COVID and it, it still applies really. It probably always does apply. But the consolidation side was is, is interesting because it's not just on the hotel side. It's not just hotels. It's also on the agency side, as you know. So I think there's going to be quite an impact with some of these the consolidations that we're actually seeing happening, especially on the business side and agencies, etc. Yeah, that, that, that's right. You know, of, of course, you know, that there's some consideration needs to be taken for how long certain certain consolidations have been planned already, you know, or, or, or takeovers, mergers, whatever you'd like to call it, really, you know, talking in, in terms of Silverdor and the apartment service and uh, you know, I think the apartment service, it, it was, a, it was something that was, it was a plan. It was planned yeah. uh, mm-hmm. rather than, uh, rather than taking over a, a, a distressed um, competitor. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, they're, they're sort of they're consolidating, but there's, there's, the overlap is not as significant as yeah. some of the other people. I and mean, obviously there's vision apartments and their hybrid type of approach. It was interesting. Yeah. With Accommodeo, great people in both organizations and yeah. Obviously, you know, continuing to work with with both those organisations, uh, merging the technology side of things with Accommodeo, developed great technology and a very solid service department operator with that with hybrid activities with vision apartments. So, yeah, um, it kind of reminds me. It kind of reminds me. I mean, obviously, um, this month has been a particularly acute month. We all thinking about you know, twenty years since nine eleven. Around that time, when the uh, stock market collapsed after what happened in New York, there was quite a lot of consolidation because the, the economy's collapsed, and all of a sudden there's certain accommodations. And one of the things I think about sometimes is lastminute.com. So, quite a few companies suddenly found themselves in a position to literally take over lots of companies and become bigger as a result, as a direct result of what had happened. And that happens with every economic collapse. But, what, but when I start looking at what's happening now, it's interesting that how people are looking at things. You mentioned about corporate travel, for instance. Obviously, on the agency side, one could argue those the consolidations are really aimed at expectations of a corporate sector that's going to revive itself. Yeah, when when, when you start looking at who those people are, they're more corporate orientated, less leisure based. So therefore, those consolidations are being driven by corporate coming back into the market, coming back and reviving their travel plans, etc. However, on the other side is climate change. And last week, I think it was last week, the CEO of Zurich Insurance came out with a statement saying that they were go- he'd kind of committed to reducing air travel by 70%. That's going to have an impact on the call. 70%. We're not talking about 5% or 10%. 70%. Of, co- of air travel, he's going to reduce that by. And he said that as a benchmark. That's why he said it. He's saying, this is what we're doing. I think a, I think a lot of companies now, when they look at the climate change and they want, and they, everybody wants to be, say they're doing something. Okay, so some people say they're going net zero and all the companies are trying to go net zero. But he was the first one that I've come across. He's actually set a benchmark based on air travel, which obviously has a direct impact on you know, the hotel sector and service department sector. So at the site, on the one hand, you're seeing this consolidation of expected corporate travel. And yet the corporates are kind of having to put themselves in a position where they're saying, you know what, we're not going to travel as much. Yeah, my brain was whizzing around there. If that company 
intends to reduce air travel by that amount, then you know, and given that there is a certain stock of of planes that should be put in the sky, then the, the airline either gets rid of those planes again, or they reduce the price of the tickets. And if they reduce the price of the tickets, then that company might not be putting more people on. But but will um, but there'll be other people that will just snap yeah. up those tickets, yeah. and uh, and they might become a leisure or goodness knows what. But they're but you know the price of the tickets goes down if they're selling it for ten pounds to Australia. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people that will will go for that. Yeah, I mean the Ryanair um, their price went up this week actually because they announced that they reckon next year over the next eighteen months they're going to be they'll have around two hundred million customers, which is a lot of people. That's a lot of people to be flying just on Ryanair. So yeah, you're right. There's, there's going to be a push, downward push on prices. It, it is it is quite strange. It's such a significant impact now being understood regarding climate change, which you know we know that we'll talk about with Lamington, etc. But it just seems very strange that the very the people who we tend to recognise as being the the higher rate customers are actually saying they're going to actually travel less. That's their expectation going forward. So having a business model that is so strongly aligned to corporate travel, I'm just questioning if that's necessarily a great thing to do, because they, you know, you know, in two years' time, you could be struggling to actually um, meet your business plan, because the corporates themselves have decided they need as part of their net zero plans to actually travel less. And the, the crazy thing is, how do you offset carbon emissions based on flights? The easiest way is not to take the flight. The effort to actually offset it otherwise is really hard. Yeah, I mean, it's, it, it kind of then come, comes back to maybe, yeah, I mean, something that we, that we talked about earlier, really, was if we take it as the, the term local. And, you know, maybe, maybe there'll be more local trade in that case, that businesses... Uh, and then you know if we're not if we're not buying something from uh, Australia for another better example, then maybe there it will make room for the companies in this country to develop and supply certain products. You know, um, obviously within reason because we haven't got good weather like they have and different things. Exactly, like that. you're right. And I think that what I do think is going to happen is that um, a lot of these corporates to mitigate less less flying, they're going to employ people in those countries. They'll have, they'll have offices in those countries rather than actually bring their own staff over. I think that's what's going to start happening. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I mean for me, uh, uh, at my age, uh, uh, as a boomer, it's it's kind of, uh, I don't want to make light of the, 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 the rather the very unfortunate events that have taken us here, but we're returning, returning to a, a world that, that feels a little bit more familiar to me where, you know, there is more local produce in, in, in shops. And it's great to think global. Um, uh, you know, and I hope that, and I hope that never disappears because it brings with it tolerance, understanding, and all those other things. But you know, in some respects, I th- I th- local is also good. Yeah. So net zero, Lamington have announced that they're going to go net zero by uh, Lamington Apartments by 2030, which is a great thing to do. I think I think it's important for these companies that we look to as market leaders to make these kind of. De- uh, open decisions and actually announce these things. One of the things they've done that I, I do like is that they've actually started to outline what they're actually going to do, which I think is a positive thing. I mean, it's, it's so easy to say you're going to be net zero and leave it at that. And people will, well, what does it mean? So it's good that they've actually started to outline it. And hopefully that will start producing some templates and people start thinking along this, these lines about what do we actually do. But I was actually looking at some of the hotels that claim to be net zero. 
And I think that I think a lot of tricks are being missed. I think a lot of things that still need to be questioned, actually. Have you noticed that some of these places that have car parks don't have car park, they don't have charging points? So, you know, so, so they're constructing hotels. They might have one or two, they might have a series of charging points, but it's not, also, also what the expectation is, you're not going to be driving an electric car when you go there in 2030. Surely by that time, everything should be electric and every single car parking space should have a, should be assumed to be electric only. I mean, that is an issue, isn't it, really? Uh, and it's difficult for people, you know, like in London, and the uh, congestion zone and, and all the rest of it is, is going wider and wider and, and forcing out diesel cars as, as well. I don't know if that's linked, actually. Or is that linked? You might be able to enlighten me on that. The strange thing about the congestion charge in London is that by, 20, I think it's 2025, electric cars will have to pay the congestion charge. Well, that's only three years' time, four years' time. <laughs> We're, we're we're in a quandary. We've got we've got a relatively old diesel car, so we'll be think we'll be looking for a new car, and so we we want petrol because then that's not going to be penalised in 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 London, and you know this hybrid thing and the batteries and the the the, the kind of the news I believe on that news, but the the fact that currently they're very hard to dispose of the batteries in a yeah, hybrid yeah. car, and. And also, I mean, there's a whole range of things that have come into play in America. One of the, I think it's the, their equivalent of our Department of Transport has actually asked the manufacturers of diesel and electric car and, and petrol cars to help find a solution to a problem that they're finding in America with some of the electric cars, which actually start, they just catch fire. Okay, so I think there have been 12 incidents where cars have just caught fire. They haven't got a clue how it's happened. And they're asking the people who've got petrol, who design petrol cars and diesel cars to now look at those cars. So there's obviously still a long way to go in terms of the actual replacing of batteries. Not easy. I mean, the, uh, a friend of ours bought a Tesla and to replace the battery cost £12,000. <laughs> <laughs> you buy a new car for that. So much our house costs. Yeah. yeah, and you know, it's wow. just a, it's a huge amount of money. I think it was twelve thousand pounds or ten thousand pounds. It's a stupid number um, for a battery. And there, then there were some, you know, so there are those things. But you know, you talk about diesel. My car's a diesel hybrid. I don't have to pay that additional surcharge because it's a hybrid. Okay, right. but you, but you uh, might catch fire. I know, <laughs> hopefully not. But yeah, well, have you got a Samsung? I've got a Samsung, but I mean. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> you're on you're on a, you're on a bit of a loser there <laughs> yeah yeah I, I know what you mean but the yeah. but it is very strange it is very strange that just as we're about to say let's stop using petrol let's stop using diesel they're going to start charging electric cars for the congestion charge i mean you would think that they would actually say no we've got to continue yeah. continue the onus of actually making it ideally low cost or free just to encourage the whole thing this is it. And I mean, you were saying about Lamington, and I was, I'm aware of, but have no nothing beyond simple awareness of a, a, a company. A, it's a company. I don't know an organisation. Don't know Green Globe. And it would be worth if people are listening or are interested in maybe taking the first step. I don't know towards kind of at least understanding the principles of what we're aiming what 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 we're aiming for with 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 all this green green thing. Then I, I was aware that Green Globe as an organization exists. I don't have a web address there, but if you Google it, you'll find it. 
and uh, yeah, don't know, but yeah, it's a, it's great in in principle, isn't it? And it then, is. um, but I think that I don't think it's going far enough personally. I mean, if I give an example, so when I was IT director at Think, one of the things I was asked to do was by the owners is it's actually it wasn't done because we wanted to be net zero, and we're talking ten years ago. Net, you know, net zero wasn't even really considered that important to be honest, but it was done to reduce the cost of the operation. So there was a business reason, a really strong business reason to run the buildings in a certain way. And also because you needed planning permissions, you still needed to demonstrate you could do, you were becoming greener as a company. Okay. So those were the real motivations. And what we did, and this is more than 10 years ago now, thinking about it, we automated the reduction in the use of electricity when people checked, when they left their apartments. So it wasn't just the hotel rooms. We actually ensured that the apartments the reduction day when you left the apartment, the electricity output being used fell, but it didn't go down to zero because you can't have it go down to zero. Okay, you have to have a certain amount of heat in an apartment, otherwise, you can actually create other problems, which, from a, a climate change perspective, actually means you end up not being net zero. So, for instance, certain furniture. You know, you need to have it at a certain temperature, room at a certain temperature, otherwise it wears out faster. So what's the point of bringing it down to zero today, the use of electricity down to zero today, if you then got to replace the furniture more frequently? Yeah. So all, all that kind of stuff had to be thought through. We also, for, for some of the buildings, we introduced these, these heaters or boilers that were using green pellets. They're a nightmare to get hold of at the time. But again, it was all about efficient, low cost energy was being used. And this is a 300 apartment building um, that we were, I'm talking about. In addition to that, the walls in the apartments were made thinner using a more, a greener material. Okay. So the, the, the fire resistant, the bit about all the fire resistant standards. So we actually reduced the amount of material we needed to ensure that we could meet all the standards, but actually it reduced the cost operationally, but it was actually done from a green perspective. Yeah. And so all of this stuff has been around for donkey's years. The only problem is that people don't talk about the problems that these things create. For instance, some of the materials that are green create a huge problem with Wi-Fi signals. So you can suddenly find yourself having all kinds of internet problems that you never had before, okay? And, and you end up spending even more money on having more resilient Wi-Fi. So, yeah, your costs don't necessarily go down. But the other thing it's is that... Go on. Sorry, no, you, you go ahead. Yeah, I was just about to say, the other thing is that the encouragement now of people bringing their own entertainment, such as, you know, films, etc., into the hotel rather than using pay-per-view, that has consequences. Because now people bring, bring their computers, they'll have X number of devices. All, uh, people leave those uh, devices on, they're going to be charged up. So you've got to make sure you provide sensible minimum levels of power. And then you've got to mitigate for the fact that it's, not, you know, it's working against your concept of being net zero. Yeah. I wonder whether all of these things will, will ultimately kind of tie in. We've got, you know, a lo local kind of living with people working potentially fewer hours although that not if not if there are so many so many vacancies um, you know but just generally like a contraction of the life that we had and it's not as frightening as 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 it sounds really but just reducing things and then in within the household i remember years ago and we lived in, a, in an apartment where we were aware if we'd left the light on in the kitchen and it was kind of stupid because we were in the living room to so switch the lights off and, and i visited 
a fella who was like, you know, like a four or five bedroom house in Richmond somewhere. And I was kind of fascinated. It was only him in the house at the time. And he had practically every every room in the house was lit. And I was thinking, oh, that's it. Strange. So that kind of thing, you know, just like an awareness of electricity and spending tied in with that. And I mentioned that the builders are in at the moment here. Would you believe they found a light between the ceiling and the and the floor between the in the loft that has been on for ten years? It's a great advert for those light bulbs because they've been on for ten years, but they had not. They just dumped it in the middle and left it there, and it was still a lit, still lit. And he fished it out. Said that's live. So what I'm really saying there is. Just the training as well uh, uh, in in construction as well of uh, like a, a bit more care taken fashioning houses and, and accommodation everything like that. There's so much we can do to just be a bit more aware. Exactly, and I think that one of the things that is going to be really interesting actually. One of the things is how are people going to take existing properties and meet the net zero requirement? It's very easy to do it on a new build. It's, I when I say it's easy, I don't mean it's easy peasy, but it's a lot easier on a new build property to think, right, this is what we're going to have to do because we've got to meet these requirements in 10 years' time, and this is how we're going to operate everything. But an existing building? 100%. You know, who's who's even looking at that stuff properly? Should, should there be legislation that says that you're – I'm serious here, and I'm, I'm, I'm actually you've, – you've convinced me, Raj. Should there be a, 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 a legislation on height of ceilings? You go into Kensington or somewhere, you go, wow, these, these ceilings are nice. And, yeah, sure, the ceilings have got a really nice pattern on it, but it's like twice the height of, of mine, and it's taking all the energy up there. You'll boil up and if you took a ladder up into the – uh, up to the top of the ceiling, and you're freezing down there, so, you, so you're increasing the heating. All those Edwardian and Georgian <laughs> properties that basically yeah. high ceilings were all the bit the rage. Yeah. I think it's I think it's going to be difficult. I mean, maybe I mean there is an argument to say start you know, introduce this false ceiling and just reduce the size. Yes. Of the oh yeah, maybe, yeah, definitely. Maybe people will have to do that. But from an organisation perspective, from a hotel perspective in particular, the existing buildings are not easy to retrofit. We had to retrofit some of the buildings that we had, okay? And we were able to do stuff to a certain point. So you can manage certain things in electricity. In fact, one of the things that we did that maybe should be thought about is start measuring how much power each apartment or each room is actually using. If you start introducing those processes, that will then give you some idea of just how big a problem do you have. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and yet we're not seeing people do that for some reason. I don't. don't I like. I mean, on at a domestic level, I like what Nest do because we get a report every month, and and I think you get Nest points and stuff like that. Yeah, you do. Yeah. Yeah. So we use twice as much electricity in August as we did in July, but we're still in the top fifty percent. I think they said of households um, down in this area or something like that. So it's good, but we we could have been better, kind of thing. But yeah, it's, it's it's all it's all interesting stuff. There is one thing I'm going to throw at you now. As a yeah, go on. This, again, climate change. So I've been looking at climate change. And part of the reason, and when I was looking at climate change, one of the incredible things is, as I was looking around, having an awful lot of hotels opening over the next year. Re- and there were some really big announcements right across the globe. Hotels, you know, we can see the industry is reviving. We can see that there's a lot of hotels opening up and hotel resorts in particular. And I came across a story 
and it was really about Thailand. It was Thailand and Southeast Asia, about the number of hotels and resorts opening up there. And I thought, this is great. And, and you can see it's a marketer's dream, isn't it? Come here, because it's all about tourism. Come here. You know, you're going to have great weather, fantastic scenery. You're looking out onto the scene. And you know what? You can go scuba diving. One of them talked about scuba diving and going out and enjoying the ocean. Now, it just happened that as I was watching, as I was looking at these stories, I came across a story that came out at the same time, and it was about sea snakes. So I put myself in the position of a marketing person who has just announced that we've opening up a new hotel. It's going, you know, you've got these great scenes of the ocean. You can go out into the ocean. You can do scuba diving. And then you find yourself with a story about sea snakes, which is to do with climate change. So there was some research done in Australia, and just by coincidence, actually, they started monitoring sea snakes. And the story was that climate change is warming up the waters and confusing the male sea snakes to the point where they were actually trying to mate with scuba divers. <laughs> so I was thinking, well, how do, you, how do you deal with that if you've just announced your great hotel is opening? How does a marketing person now have to deal with that sort of story because if people start looking up what you've just marketed out, sent out there as a message, they're almost certainly going to come across this story. You you did catch me there at the end. That was a total curveball because I was I had all kinds of um, marketing things planned from you know observing these lovely uh, sea snakes to to you know something which animal rights people won't like which is um snake hunting forgive me everybody out there who, who who's there and um, you know I'm, I'm 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 in i'm speaking in jest um what do you do about that one um i think you probably behave as if you've got um uh, seriously if you've got sharks in the water you simply can't go out there you need to do a nets up to a certain level, don't you, really? And you need to just kind of deal with that. Well, from a marketing perspective, you just marketed your hotel as being the scuba, a great place to do scuba diving, and you've got that. So what does the marketing person now do? Do you talk about CSA? Do you talk about the story, or you just pretend it doesn't exist? You can't, you can't pretend it doesn't exist, and if you can't get rid of them, you need to give the... You, and, and you've just marketed scuba diving. I suppose that it needs to be a unique scuba diving experience. Certainly will be that. <laughs> <laughs> where there is a, a, a that where you're either wearing certain clothing or you're going down in some kind of craft. I don't it know. actually I don't... reminded yeah. It actually reminded me of a problem we had when we were thinking we were opening up these hotels in London, and we were opening up the apart hotels floors at a time. Because it, basically there was, you know, economic crash had happened 2010, 2009. And we decided to, as we were building, to make available the finished apartments to the market. So at least there was some revenue coming in. And I remember having to deal with a, a situation where the marketing department had gone out all out we would, to do a fantastic opening. And they had all this literature. And in the literature, they had highlighted the swimming pools in the apart hotels which not only had not been, not only had they not been constructed, but we were trying to work out ways of not introducing them. <laughs> so we were trying to work out ways to say, we'll do that later. We'll, you know, we'll do it in 10 years' time or whatever. And all of a sudden, we had these marketing guys going out and telling the whole world we had swimming pools available from day one when you walk into the, into the actual hotels. 
the way we got around that was basically drop all mention of swimming pools and just hope nobody looks at the literature that's already been pushed out. But in terms of things like, the, uh, now when you think about climate change and how it's affecting, if it's affecting sea snakes and that, who's to say it's not going to affect some other animals in some way and other, and other aspects of ocean life? So how do you know, it's almost like marketing people have got to start taking on board the fact that there could be some really bad things they have to deal with just from the fact that what is, looks like a really wonderful calm sea is suddenly not quite what it is expected to be. I mean, I'm a big believer, in, and I don't know whether there'll be marketing purists or theorists out there who, who will disagree, perhaps strongly. But I, I, I do believe that marketing has to be honest, you know, that you, you can't market a lie and you can't market danger or, or, or an unpleasant experience. So the marketing people have to be responsible and, and actually backtrack and be honest or trust all trust will be lost and that brand could could collapse it in, in you know in, in other kind of areas you know you said that oh they're the ones that told us that there were no sea serpents there's the scars kind of thing mm-hmm. um you know so no, you have to i think honesty has to prevail it's interesting you mentioned in those terms it's really interesting because um there was a i think we'll, i think i'll bring it up in the next podcast but there was a big thing uh during the summer about how hotel groups and hotels in particular uh, hotels uh independent hotels as well should m- measure metrics and, and determine are they doing well or not now what are the measurements as a business now that you should be looking at and um there were 20 metrics that were established as being core metrics and the number one metric that was uh, recommended, and basically what the, the survey was done by a group of marketers who came up with all these different metrics, working with revenue managers. And they asked a, a, a large number of people who were CEOs and owners of uh, groups of hotels, what they thought the number one metric was. And the number one metric turned out to be reputation. Everybody agreed and reputation was the number one metric. So your comments regarding the honesty is really important. So that then sort of makes one think, okay, so marketing people are now responsible for the reputation of the company, if you actually think about it in those terms. Yeah. So therefore, should marketing people now decide what the company does in certain aspects? So for instance, maybe they should demand, in this particular instance with the sea snakes and maybe other things, they should demand that the hotel get involved with wildlife preservation, should get involved with helping those people who are involved in you know not, i'm not saying lifeboat guards and people like that maybe they should do that as well but they should get involved with those introducing those things that actually protect us from those type of events and not just assume it's somebody else's responsibility the question isn't it really because at the end of the day it's the investors the financiers who, who who've decided you know on the location of certain accommodation in order to supply a certain demand and how they how they um, service that demand, then the marketing people will uh, are brought in to market what what's there and what the investors financiers have decided should be a, a, a you know a profitable business. Um, I suppose you could otherwise say it's what's the expression like the tail is wagging the dog or something. Yeah. You know, so very I, I take your point completely, hundred percent because you know, and it's kind of like goes around in a circle. And it's then where does that circle start as, as to determine 
what determines what the business is and perhaps. Yeah. But yeah, interesting. I've interesting. actually had one weird experience with marketing who who actually uh, thought, in fact, I'll be, it's quite strange, not just one, there's quite a few actually, but one, in terms of hospitality, the one example that comes to me where I had to deal with it, or one of the people who had to deal with it was where uh, marketing people decided that they knew best. And what they did was they did a survey and to see what people were using in the apartments. And they did this survey um, and it showed that 60% of people, in fact, it was more than 60% of people actually weren't using the washing machine. So, and remember, we were releasing um, the apartments a floor at a time as they were being constructed. So I still remember sitting in the meeting and I didn't really want want to go to this meeting. And the owner pulled me along, dragged me along. And I'm sitting in the corner hearing all this stuff. Okay. And they're saying, look, 60%. Of our customer, we did a survey. Sixty percent saying don't don't want a washing machine. Let's save money because remember, we, at that time we'd you know, gone into a downturn. The economy was really being hammered. So they said, look, we can do a great thing here. We're going to actually uh, save you lots of money. We don't need the washing machine, okay? And everybody's buying into this thing. And the owner looked at me and I and I said, what do you think? And I said, first of all, what are you going to do with the hole in the kitchen there's all we plan wait what else are you gonna put in there another cupboard that no one's going to use because who's bringing food with them okay and then the other thing i asked was well how many people have you actually surveyed because nobody would ask that question all right and it turned out to be about 12 people had responded <laughs> and he sort of saw this thing they're all talking percentages and all trying to make a really wow. big impression and it was such a small sample the minute they said 12 not one person in that room took it seriously. But it showed how far it had got in order to not be taken seriously. So, yeah, I th- I think, yeah, yeah. I, so I think the reputation, we have to be really careful about how we are led in terms of what people think about our reputations. I mean, 100%. And um, that's then why why the, uh, the concept of brands is so important, isn't it? That, and, and why they, I mean, I'm no, I'm no branding expert, but, um, you know, why they a certain brand means certain things and the people that, are, that operate within that brand have to adhere to certain standards, you know? So, yeah, because then what you expect and whether it's a, a brand but within a different country or a different culture, but that should nevertheless reflect basically what you can expect there there will be certain kind of uh, differences but you know the old the old take me to the hilton advert yeah. um that i that, that, that scarred my brain since i was uh, you know I, I seem to constantly quote it but um i was only about three at the time no i wasn't but you know but that is the thing take me to the hilton you know, you you know what it, it is. Sets the standard. Wherever you are. It sets the standard. Yeah. In fact, actually, thinking about that, I've got a couple of things here that I think might be of interest. There was a a big place that I've been. No more difficult questions, well, Raj. Thanks. No more. Let's just see. No more. Let's difficult. just see how you handle this one. Um, the, over the summer, there have been there's been a lot of talk about artificial intelligence, as it has been for a long time now. But there have been quite a few big announcements regarding it, and. One of the things that I thought was quite interesting was which how our industry is using artificial intelligence. And what I didn't know was that lawyers, and I know it's happening in medical side, okay, I know it's happening in healthcare, but was, what, what I wasn't aware of, a lot of lawyers are now using AI tools to write their defences and their the statements they, and to determine the statements they're making in court. 
So the question arose, there was an article, where, uh, the question arose, would you allow a robot to defend you? If at the end of the day, all the lawyer is doing is saying what the robot would say, okay? It's, it's wonderful because it's, 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 it's opened up a whole new batch of um, lawyer jokes. Yeah, exactly, exactly. However, <laughs> however, taking it one step further and applying it to hospitality, would you or how would you feel if instead of being met by a person, you were met by a robot? I mean, it, it would be, it, it, I think it depends on generation. I'm old and I would prefer, and I, and I um, respect and like a certain degree of service in what is fundamentally a service, a service sector with, with hospitality or at least with accommodation. And I, I would prefer to be met by, by a person, but I'm very, very comfortable if somebody were to say, yeah, but you're old and young people, they book online, hanging upside down from the ceiling on the telephone. They, they, and they don't, they don't need another, they don't need a person. They, they'll, they'll check themselves in. And I think that's probably the way the world is going until service is reinvented at some point, which it will be by some bright spark that thinks they've just come out with something new. It'll just go around in circle in circles. I think. Um, I think that, that that service will be removed from hospitality wherever people can save money, and it will return at some point, at some point in time, or a brand will make it a part of that's what they stand for. People in a people, you know, service and people. I don't think five star uh, hotels will will ever go that way because you know they've got a battery of people. Who, um, you know, so, yeah, that's my view. I think that it's a really interesting question because a lot of hotels, in some cases, it's been enforced upon them because of the pandemic, but they've actually taken on the idea of having kiosks at the check-in and not having meet and greet, okay? So you, you go there, you use a kiosk to check in, a kiosk to check out, but I don't think a robot will work. And I think a real robot won't work because, and again, it's going to be by country, and by culture. I think in some cultures, a robot may actually work, okay? Japan. Possibly Japan. I think... Uh, I th- yeah. They've got them. Yeah. They've got them right. there, haven't they? I, I, I haven't seen... seen them in Japan, but if they got them, great. I don't think it will work in the UK because we'll just make fun of the blooming things. And also, you know what it's like? We're going to ask a really silly question just to see what it says. And I think that that element... And, and the worst part of it is when we get angry... We tend to be quite reserved in some respects. We keep the anger inside. You, but you gauge it when you're meeting somebody and you know that they've had a hard time getting to where you are. I mean, can you imagine treating every guest with the same hello? A guy who just has had an easy journey there, fine. person who's had a nightmare journey there does not want to be greeted exactly the same way. So that gauging of what a person's like, what, uh, the sensing what they've been through to get to the hotel... I don't think a robot's going to be able to do that unless it's got a sort of <laughs> major temperature and think, oh my God, he's boiling that and it's freezing outside. He's really angry. <laughs> um, there's two, two things there, really. I think, you know, with, with asking them those questions, those difficult questions, I think uh, Alexa has, given, has taken us down that road to some extent. And, I, and, I, and, I, and I've tried to ask difficult questions and, and Alexa has got the better of me. And I just left the kitchen in a, in a, in a huff because it's got, yeah, I'm thinking, well, it's probably is more intelligent than me with regard to the, uh, what was that other point? 
What was that other point? It's you about gauging, no, gauging based on just on the meat without saying anything. What a person's been through to get to the actual hotel. Exactly. And we've talked about brands and within brands, you've got staff training and you could argue that staff training in, within some brands, and I've seen it recently, actually, I've been horrified by it. Staff training, not in our sector, in the hotel sector, is so rigid that the staff just are trained to say certain things, which can be very inappropriate. Uh, the, the, the particular thing I heard was there was somebody on the phone complaining about uh, pre-authorization of a, of a credit card. The, the lady in a, in a big brand uh, hotel said, we're an American chain. It's the American way. And I almost melted with embarrassment. Like what? That isn't even training, actually. Yeah. That's but, not how you, you handle know, it. That is a problem. Yeah, you don't handle it like yeah. that at all. That's a totally wrong way. No. And we do pre-authorizations, yeah. and I actually have to explain to people how you how you handle those sort of calls. And I know that is not what you do. You're Perfect. asking for well, trouble. There you go. Yeah, it's asking. Rigid yeah. training is always a problem. I mean, I think that the yeah. human element of hospitality. I mean, it's in the word, isn't it? Hospitality. If you don't embrace that, yeah, it works against you. It just works against you. And going back to the first point I made, number one metric was reputation. To me, that means you have to understand it's in the name, hospitality. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 100%. And finally, talking about hospitality. Yeah. I was surprised to find out tomorrow is National Hospitality Day, which really yeah. crept up on me. And I'm really... I don't understand how it's crept up on me. We're supposed to be you know, understanding what's going on in the world of hospitality. And all of a sudden, I saw this thing come out of the blue. It's National Hospitality um, Day uh, tomorrow on the 18th. And that was a bit of a strange one. I, I, you know, what people's expectations are, I'm unsure. But I did look at um, the website. It's being, it's being managed by... Um, did I ask Raj while she yeah. was looking at that? Who decides whether it is? Do you have to register the day with the government? Somehow? I honestly or... don't know. However, however, the people who are supporting this are the Drinks Trust, Hospitality Action, LTC, and Springboard. So there's quite a few charities behind this, and then obviously they've been and hospitality, um, quite a few hospitality organisations outside of those are also um, involved. But what I thought was interesting was, and there are some good things that I think really are important, but more so it's some of the, the fact that they're trying to revive hospitality in the right way. So I'll just give you a few things that they've sort of you know, put down. One was to actually showcase how the industry had actually helped frontline workers and families during the lockdowns, okay? Because you've done a lot. People don't realise how much the hospitality industry has actually done. Well, I'll give you one example. We have a customer in Brighton, and during one of the lockdowns, he didn't want to close his restaurant that was attached to the hotel. So he was actually providing free hot meals to people. Okay, And, the, and I'm sure lots of little hotels are doing stuff like that. It's important to highlight it. The other thing is one of their aspirations is tomorrow to actually uh, lift the national mood, which I think is a big thing to ask, because how do you measure it? You know. If, if, if tomorrow turns out to be a great day for sport, how do you know it's not the sporting day is, and they lifted the national mood rather than, you know, your activities? So I think that's a big ask. But there are some other things that I think are really important. One is they want to create more greater footfall and improve revenues for the um, restaurants and hotels because we've all suffered. Yeah, we've got to rebuild the industry in many respects. In many respects, 
and the other aspects that they've highlighted is actually the importance of hospitality. And we tend to, in terms of the local community and the social fabric of the community, I think we underestimate that. We really do underestimate it. We take it for granted. You know, we don't realize how important it is to have not just hotels around you to allow tourism, but also the cafeterias and the restaurants and the pubs and clubs and all that kind of stuff really does play a big part in what makes up a community. And I think sometimes it's easy to forget that. And because we've been so far, they've been, the, a lot of these establishments have been closed for so long, it's easy to become disconnected with those things. And therefore, we don't realise how the community has suffered uh, because that disconnect has created significant distance. And the, and the other thing that they really want to push is actually promoting that a lot of work has been done to secure the environments to make them safe and to actually build confidence in getting people in. So, so th those are the aspirations. I think they're all good aspirations. I just think it, I just wish it hadn't crept up on me because <laughs> what is the build up to these things? And, and how do you do that? I mean, some of the, some of the features kind of touch on that acts of spontaneous kindness thing, don't they? Where like, how do you um, improve the mood? It's a, a difficult one when I can only really imagine that, that, it can be that there will be balloons in the street to make you smile, like like street parties. It's it's also going to be kind of regional, perhaps. You know that, and you know we're both we're both based in London, and uh, you know it's nice. Would be nice to mention the the, the Central London Alliances. Yeah, uh, Tony Tony Matharu, um, who, who's they're trying. Whether well, you, you mentioned about re-engaging, I've forgotten the term you used, but you know. Yeah, there's less activity now in down in central London in the hospitality world, or so we're so we're told. There there are kind of mixed mixed um, there's mixed information there as to whether guests did ever leave the central London hotels and go into the suburbs because some are saying they did, some are saying they 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 didn't. But if we were to take that principle, then then yeah, getting getting business back into those areas that. Has has suffered the most, really. Probably Edinburgh is it would be another one. I don't really know, but certainly Central London. Mm -hmm. And yeah, Na National Hospitality Day. That really is an interesting one. So restaurants, pubs, but hotels as well. Gosh. I think I think one of the things that I think one of the things this really highlights is that if you actually think about some of the things that have been done over the year. I mean, the government introduced that um, eat out, wasn't it? That ten pound thing, eat out. Ten pound or whatever it was, those kind of things should really be aligned to these days. That yeah, that, I mean, I, I would be very there, much, I would very much support this activity if they were giving away free beer. Yeah, for exactly. I don't think that's un, it's just not unreasonable. Might one get one free, sort of thing. Well, no, I want them all free. <laughs> no, but I, I think it's it is actually quite strange. We we and maybe this has become a problem in many countries, not just in the UK. Hospitality has become quite fragmented in terms of its voice hotels don't seem to figure in the world of the people who represent the pubs and the clubs and so on and you know it's because of that fragmentation it's hard to actually almost put together a consistent plan that will actually show the full benefit of tourism you can't talk tourism you can't talk about tourism without talking about hotels and flights you can't talk about you know bringing people into your area to see the great things that you do unless you take those things on board and yet, there is this disconnect that's happening with the, the 
the communities. Communities you know, need their pubs and clubs and the restaurants in the same way that they need the local shops. So it's almost as though what's happening, and maybe this is why it crept up on me, is because that fragmentation of the, of the way the industries are being actually promoted has result, you know, it results in things creeping up on you. And really, we should all be aware of these things because then we can all coordinate together and participate together. Exactly. And, and the, the creeping up, term of, of creeping up um, and just change generally and a recognition that, that, that change is often, uh, you know, is a really uncomfortable um, thing, change management, basically. And the realisation that the world might totally change, you know, uh, things might change completely. It doesn't mean that the world has fallen apart. We just, uh, I, I, I would quote old, um, what's his name now, Darwin, were it not for the fact that if you do it on look look at it look it up on Wikipedia, he never did say that um, change that the survival of the fittest and what That's have correct. you. Anyway, let's pretend he did say it. You know, it's it's those that can adapt to change that will survive, basically, and not the strongest or the most intelligent necessarily. So that's the argument against international uh, AI for, for a start. Um, but yeah, I mean, change. You know, it doesn't mean that the world's going to fall apart or that it's the end of your world. You just have to adapt to that change. Exactly. And and it'll still be a good world. You know? Absolutely. Okay. Well, thank you all for listening, and hope you join us on our next show. This is goodbye from Raj. And goodbye from Rich. Thanks a lot. Bye. Bye.